This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, almost 90% of physicians reported that more personal protective equipment would reduce their anxiety about COVID-19. About 42% said that they had seen no change in their supply and access to more PPE. But a third said the situation was better and a third said the situation was worse. How do we get more PPE to those frontline workers? It's businesses of all stripes that are struggling to cope with this new world that we have found ourselves in. Each day of public health restrictions pushes more businesses to the brink of bankruptcy. One thing we've heard is that small businesses are having trouble making rent. What will retail look like post-pandemic? As we try to move forward from the COVID-19 shutdown, how are BC schools reopening? And what are the plans and protections that will be put in place? You know, this isn't going to happen next week. There's going to be plenty of time given for people to make those adjustments. And it's going to be another big feat to, to move schools back. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. We're going to talk about a perspective that we haven't had a lot of light shed on lately. And that is having to do with what it really is like inside hospitals right across Canada. Now, Global News journalist Karen Lieberman had the opportunity to see the impact that COVID-19 is actually having on an ICU ward at the Humber River Hospital in Toronto firsthand. And she joins us now to talk more about that. Karen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It sounds like there's a lot that the doctors don't know yet, but what did they tell you about what the situation is really like in these hospitals? So these doctors and nurses that we met were incredibly open with us, very candid about the fact that this virus really remains a mystery more than a month into the pandemic. What they know is that the patients they're seeing, these patients in the ICU where we spent the day, are critically ill. They are dying, and it is a race to save them. They're more or less like running a marathon. That's really what it felt like, a race to save these patients. And the ones that we saw... Um, there could be more than a dozen COVID-positive patients on any given day. When we were there, there were 15. These are the sickest COVID patients in the hospital. And they're the ones also that sometimes can't be saved. It's heartbreaking. Um, It's also quite sad to see how many times and listen to how many times they have to say to each other, oh, no, you know, we're running short on that, we're running short on this. Because as we've all reported across the country, there are mass shortages of PPE, the personal protective equipment. And and so we saw that firsthand. Um, And also, you know, you realize just how necessary it really is Mm -hmm. because they're going right up close into, you know, what you would say is like the mouth of the dragon, so um, so it was very eye-opening for us. Now, what is that impact? That must be so hard for them day in and day out to be dealing mm-hmm. with this right on the front lines. So that must have quite the impact on the frontline workers themselves and their families. Absolutely. I would say that it takes a toll on everyone for so many reasons. Firstly, you know, as many of us are at home, self-isolating, 
you know, these doctors and nurses can't do that. So, so yes, they go home to sleep after, you know, their 12-hour shifts or however long they're on shift for, but they have to make important decisions. Are they going to physically separate from their young children and their spouses or their partners? Um, you know, one doctor we spoke to said he's not doing that. He's taking as many precautions as he can, but he says it's just not feasible with three children at home and not knowing how long this pandemic is going to drag out for. And also, needing, that, needing those connections, like that emotional support from your family. It's so important. It's so critical for them. Um, But there's always, you know, that that in their back of their mind, the fact that they could potentially have COVID and they could be bringing it home to their children and their families. And so that is very difficult, you know, to to fathom for for the rest of us. Um, Also, keep in mind, you know, in the ICU, there is no in the hospital in general, you can't have family members with you. And the ones that they're treating, these patients are critically ill, they're dying, and they have no one at their bedside. And so these frontline healthcare workers are not only helping them physically and caring for them, but they're holding their hands in, in sometimes their final moments. And, and so it's got to take mm. such a major toll on everyone. Oh, that is so true. Karen, thanks very much for the perspective. Thanks for having me. As Karen Lieberman, Global News Journalist, for more on the work that she did talking to the frontline workers and getting a glimpse inside a major hospital in Toronto, check it all out at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as if doctors don't have enough to worry about these days, there's a new poll from the Canadian Medical Association that says the fight to find enough personal protective equipment is definitely causing a lot of anxiety out there. So let's talk more about this poll and what it found. Joining us now is Dr. Gigi Osler, a Winnipeg surgeon and the immediate past president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Osler, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. So how many doctors did did the survey take a look at across the country? We surveyed about 2,500 physicians uh, across the country, and it was a follow-up poll uh, to a survey we had done at the end of March, which showed high levels of concern about the PPE supply. And, and this survey shows that there still is widespread concern about the supply of protective personal equipment in Canada. So almost 90% of the doctors that you spoke to said that more PPE would reduce their anxiety. Has that gotten better at all? That's a very high number. It is a high number, and it, it speaks to the fact that um, COVID-19 still is in the community. Uh, it, it has not changed significantly from the first pool. And when we dove into questioning them about PPE more, about 42% said that they had seen no change in their supply and access to more PPE but a third said the situation was better, and a third said the situation was worse. And, you know, that's the kind of stress and anxiety that you don't want your doctors, your nurses, or your healthcare workers to undergo at this point in time, um, you know, when the threat of COVID-19 really hasn't left us at all. Was there any difference in the response between doctors who work in hospitals and doctors who say work out in the community? Mm-hmm. It's the stress and anxiety and lack of information and access to PPE uh, is definitely worse for the frontline docs working in the community. So your, you know, regular family doctor who you want to go see for a checkup, Mm -hmm. um, your specialist who you need to go see, the hospitals are better supplied. Still, uh, depending on the hospital, depending on the region, depending on the province, the information and 
openness about the supply differs, uh, but certainly across the country, we're hearing from frontline community docs that you know, their situation either hasn't changed or, in fact, may be worse. Were you able to divide it up by province at all, or was it just a countrywide look that you took? We, we have, and I don't have the BC numbers off the tip of my fingers, but um, just depending on how many respondents were in a particular province, we have to um, l- group them with another province. And so some of those smaller provinces were grouped together, like the Atlantic province. Right. BC, from what I recall, fared not too badly. Um, certainly, we were hearing reports out of Alberta, for example, that even though they may have received some PPE, some masks, they were substandards and weren't fitting well or mm. were just simply falling apart. Was there anything that suggested, like, what would make doctors feel better? Would, did you ask that question about what could mm-hmm. help ease that anxiety? Mm-hmm. Certainly, knowing more information, so more openness and transparency about the supply and better coordination about it, I think would go a long way to reduce the stress and anxiety. And and that speaks to a lot of the unknowns about COVID-19 right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we can control one thing, like information about PPE supply, I think that would go a long way to show support for uh, our doctors, our nurses, and our healthcare workers. How are they feeling about the issue of testing? Again, I think that speaks to a lot of the unknown. And so without more widespread testing, it's hard to know who has it. Is somebody who's got a cough and cold and fever just coming in to see me because of a cold? Or could this be COVID-19? So certainly we agree with the public. We agree with the public health agencies who want to do more testing. uh, And we are encouraged to see a lot of the criteria for who can get tested opened up. Um, so we definitely support that. And I think more testing would alleviate the concerns of Canadians as well as uh, doctors, nurses and frontline workers. Do you think doctors are feeling supported at this time? I and mean, we've seen such a huge level of support for mm-hmm. healthcare workers right across the country. Are doctors mm-hmm. feeling that? You know, the public has been outstanding in their support of uh, everyone working in the fight against COVID-19. And, you know, I know in some communities they'll go out at 7 p.m. and clap oh, and we bang do. pots yeah. and pans. You know, we at the Canadian Medical Association continue to want to look out for our members because this pandemic has proved to be an, an unprecedented stressor. And it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so, you know, if we're hearing a lot of stress and anxiety from our doctors right now. We want to make sure that we can support them now. And we're working across the country and in different provinces uh, on different support programs because we need to keep them well now and we need to keep them well in the months ahead, You know, particularly if there are second waves or even third waves, as some experts are suggesting. So it sounds like, though, from the poll that you did, that if we can just address that major issue of personal protective equipment, that would go a long way, though, towards helping doctors and easing their anxiety. It certainly would, because these are doctors and nurses and workers who are going to work every day suiting up in their PPE to treat people who are sick and need their help. And so if we can get them the best quality PPE, or at the very least, provide them more information on 
supply, uh, how much is there, you know, what to expect. I think even that would mm-hmm. reduce the anxiety. Ninety percent of respondents said that alone, more information, would reduce their stress. All right, some lessons there for us for sure. Dr. Osler, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. That's Dr. Gigi Osler, Winnipeg surgeon and immediate past president of the Canadian Medical Association. They are out with this poll this morning talking about the majority of physicians. And when they say majority, they mean a lot. We're talking almost 90% of doctors that they surveyed across the country are feeling anxious and say that having more personal protective equipment would go a long way towards easing that anxiety. Uh, That is like the number one issue that they identified. They also said more testing would be helpful. Uh, Some other issues that they said would be uh, good would be better virtual care options. And that certainly applies for community uh, physicians like doctors who are working in clinics, family doctors, that kind of thing. Uh, But essentially increased peer support, they, they pointed out, but the overwhelming one was give them more and and lots of the personal protective equipment and they would feel a lot better about working through this pandemic. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I just love this next story. The moment that I heard about it. Have you heard the story about the young boy in Saanich over on Vancouver Island? He has been telling jokes. He set up a joke stand rather than a lemonade stand or anything like that. He set up a joke stand at the end of his driveway to help brighten the day of his neighbors. And let me tell you, if I saw a child in the neighborhood with a joke stand... I would definitely be stopping to see what that's all about. Well, Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to have a chat with and maybe exchange a few jokes with uh, Callahan McLaughlin and his mother, Kelsey. I was hoping that we could start by me sharing a joke with you because I hear that you're quite the jokester. Yes, I am. (laughs) Okay, have you heard this one? How do you talk to a giant? You use big words. (laughs) A good one. I bet that you have way better jokes than that one, though. What's your favorite joke that you're telling right now? What do you call bugs that you can't understand? I don't know. A mumblebee. (laughs) I love it. It's no surprise that your jokes have become so popular in Saanich. Kelsey, has he always been such a jokester? He has. I would say in the last six to 12 months, uh, humor has been practiced around our house and a lot of needing to kind of explain things that are a play on words. But uh, once you do explain the joke, actually, Callahan's pretty good at, at remembering it for the future and getting it. Yeah, I guess that's all part of being that age, huh? Uh, Callahan, how old are you? Six. Six years old. And when you grow up, what do you want to do for a job? I want to be an engineer. Wow, that's impressive. How come? Um, because it can make really good paper airplanes. <laughs> I don't know. I think you should be a stand-up comedian. That's pretty funny. <laughs> what kind of reaction have you been getting out there at the end of your driveway telling jokes to people? Mm, a smile. Smiles, yeah. How much? Uh, how much do you charge for a joke? They're free. They're free? That's a heck of a deal. Why did you want to offer up jokes for free? So people can save their money. Oh, what do you think that people need to save their money right now for? Because they might not have a job because of COVID. How are you doing with this whole COVID thing? Fine. Yeah, you're doing okay, huh? Yes, but I miss school a lot. Do you? I guess you haven't been able to see your friends too much. Or do they drive by with their parents to come hear a joke? 
Uh, they drive by sometimes. <laughs> Do you have a lot of repeat customers, people who drive back again and again and again to hear more jokes? A lot of. What seems to be the most popular joke that you tell? Mm, where did the bull take the cow on a date? I don't know. Dinner and a movie. <laughs> At least you didn't say the steakhouse. <laughs> So, Kelsey, what started all of this? Why did Callahan want to set up shop at the end of the driveway and tell jokes to people in such a miserable time? Well, every spring break and summer break, we usually compile a list of different things that we want to do as a family. And the thing that always stands out year after year is a lemonade stand. And so this time around, we knew that that wasn't going to be possible for Callahan. So I had to try and think of something where he's, still had the same level of social engagement and being out in his neighborhood, but obviously from a safe distance and without exchanging any money. And this seemed to be something that would fit that bill. And how has it been received by neighbors? I imagine they're just loving it. They do. They really have been enjoying. It really does bring a smile to their face. So even if people don't stop, they definitely give a smile and a wave. And so I you can't really ask for more than that right now when most people sort of have their, their heads down and their thoughts elsewhere. Ain't that the truth. Okay, Callahan, I have one more joke for you before I say goodbye. How do we know that the ocean is friendly? It waves. Oh, you knew that one. <laughs> Callahan, best of luck with your joke shop. I love the idea. I think that's wonderful. And Kelsey, thank you so much. It sounds like you're raising some really fun kids. Thanks so much, Nikki. Have a great day. Only our Nikki Reitmeyer would try to compete with a kid when it comes to telling jokes like that. Uh, that is Callahan McLaughlin. Also, what a great name, right? That kid's going places with a name like that. And his mom, Kelsey, who spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer. Callahan is the little boy you've been hearing about in the news, the one who set up a joke stand at the end of his driveway to help uh, brighten the days of his neighbors. You know what? Everybody doing their part. Callahan McLaughlin certainly jumping in to do his. This is Mornings with Simi. Each day of public health restrictions pushes more businesses to the brink of bankruptcy. One thing we've heard is that small businesses are having trouble making rent. Even if the wage subsidy was 100%, uh, the employer would still struggle. Those are just some of the concerns that we've heard about keeping small businesses afloat in this COVID-19 pandemic situation. It's small businesses of all kinds that are struggling and also retailers, of course. And that is more visible to us, I think, than anything else. The boarded up storefronts now that have become uh, normal for all these retailers that have essentially closed down for now. But what is that going to mean even when things start to reopen? Not every retailer is going to make it. So what's going to happen to shopping malls, the places where we used to go and congregate to do so much shopping? To talk more about that, joining me now, Tim Sanderson, the Executive Vice President at JLL Canada. They represent retailers and landlords. Tim, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Good morning. Tell me a bit about your business then. So you must do a lot of work in the retail industry. Yes, um, we've been focused on retail for over 25 years. Um, and we, as you pointed out, we work with both landlords, <clears throat> large-scale national landlords, small-scale landlords. Um, we help many retailers develop their strategy to open bricks-and-mortar stores, um, uh, find the right locations, help them through the lease process, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we've been very active. We're on the front lines of uh, what goes on in retail 
we live it, eat, and breathe it every day. So what are you hearing then from retailers? It sounds like it's going to be a dramatically different landscape when all is said and done. I, it's absolutely going to be different. Um, you know, in opening comments, uh, you noted uh, that retail is sort of taking it on the chin. We're seeing boarded up uh, storefronts, et cetera. And, you know, what's interesting is pretty much all of us, every single one of us is a consumer in some way, shape, or form. And, and we're used to understanding retail. The average person doesn't understand how an office building functions or a warehouse or a distribution center functions. All of us go into a store one, two, three, ten times a day. We know what it means to transact business uh, with a proprietor of that business. And <clears throat> we can all feel for it. We watch it in the press. We see it on TV. We know that retail has been under fire by e-commerce um, for the last number of years. And, you know, this uh, COVID epidemic or pandemic is sort of, I don't want to say tip things over, but it's pushed things to the breaking point um, from a retail perspective. Stores have been closed. <clears throat> Businesses have been interrupted. Sales are not happening. People cannot pay rent. Employees are being furloughed or laid off. Um, so it's it's unprecedented times. Um, in 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 uh, recessions earlier, um, you know, we never saw this level of impact on the retail business. What are these malls going to look like then when all is said and done? Are we talking big gaps? Look, I think the major malls, uh, you know, Pacific Center, et cetera, et cetera, West Edmonton Mall, I mean, these things are going to survive. They're the dominant regional mall in their marketplaces. Uh, They've got professional, uh, qualified, deep-pocketed ownership. Um, There will be some vacancies. There's no doubt about it. Um, We see vacancies from time to time, even in the best centers. Um, You know, one of the things that I think has to uh, happen, and the landlords are keenly aware of it, we talk to them every day about it, is getting people back into the shopping centers once they've been closed. How do we drive traffic? What are the generators? I mean, the generators in the last five years that have been talked about constantly in the industry are food and beverage and entertainment. Um, and those right now are, are really the hardest hit, as we saw the uh, theaters close across the country, actually around the world, very early on uh, when the pandemic hit. Um, food and beverage are more so uh, driven by small operators, mom and pops. There's lots of them in that category. They've been greatly impacted. So how we get people back into these shopping centers and what the traffic generators are uh, for the next wave of, of retail are going to be the challenge. It's been really interesting to watch, though, hasn't it, Tim? Because people thought that online retail was going to be it. It would decimate, you know, all the other brick-and-mortar stores. That didn't happen even during this pandemic situation because even online retail could not handle everything. We need the brick-and-mortar stores. That, 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 that is very, very true. Um, you know, in the second or third week of uh, March, there was $2 trillion worth of fashion orders cancelled you know, globally, um, these are obviously in the in the markets that produce those goods, uh, Southeast China, India, China itself, um, and uh, Southeast Asia, I should say. And, um, you know, those products uh, are, are, some of them were, were in production, so they're sitting somewhere. Where, where are they going to go um, is the question. And um, they've got to get to market somehow. Um, you can't just put this stuff into a warehouse and all of a sudden turn that warehouse into an e-commerce distribution center and try to sell it. It's not that simple. The final destination before the consumer, uh, you know, walks out of a, out of a building with a with a product has been for many many years the brick and mortar location, the store itself, and we're still going to see that. 
So do you envision maybe shopping malls kind of limiting the number of people in there or stores having to deal with that idea of how to keep distancing in a shopping mall? Uh, that is one of the things that's being talked about right now as as people start to circle dates on their calendars about when shopping centers are going to open again. There's a huge operational component to understanding what does that mean? Is there going to be only one entrance open, for example? Uh, will one end of the mall open on Monday and the next open on Tuesday and vice versa? Um, you know, it's pretty certain that I would suggest that food courts are going to be limited in the amount of seating that they're going to allow. They're going to rope some of that off, I'm sure. Um, are, is there going to be someone standing in front of every store spraying somebody's hands? Are we all going to have to wear masks? What's it going to mean for trying on clothing in a clothing store? These are all questions that, uh, that are being discussed um, and, uh, you know, need to be ironed out for sure. Would you say that this is like being discussed right across the country or some regions kind of deeper into it than other regions? Um, you know, look, I think I think the big players in the in the category, the biggest landlords who have brought them, most of them have properties right across the country, are looking at it on a national basis. Yes. So you think what in the next few weeks we'll hear more about this? Uh, I think as we certainly as 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 we can get closer to an opening date when the provinces. Uh, decide, hey, we're going to allow you to reopen these shopping centers. And, and obviously not every province decreed that the shopping center had to close. But, um, you know, in Ontario, Quebec, for example, we've, we've got to have those provinces say, okay, uh, you are free to open these malls again. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, and then once there's a date on the calendar, I think we'll certainly hear more about it. Um, you know, you don't want to have people standing in line to get into a shopping center. Um, you know, we've seen that in, in other countries. We, yeah, it's going to be an interesting time. Tim, thank you for that. Quite welcome. Have a great day and be well, please. You too, please. That is Tim Sanderson, Executive Vice President at JLL Canada. They have a, a background in retail real estate. They deal with retailers and landlords. So you can tell that whole planning process of the shopping mall is still going to be there. But what are they going to look like? That is the issue. Yes, there will be some empty storefronts, but uh, Tim says that they're confident that you know those will get filled up eventually. The question is, how do you maintain distancing and make shopping malls still feel like a safe place for people to go? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So Nova Scotia RCMP will be providing another update today on their investigation into the mass shooting that killed 22 people last weekend. Uh, That coming at about noon our time, so we'll keep you posted on that. And of course, one of the huge issues that everybody has had with this shooting is the idea that how did this man have this vehicle that looked almost identical to an RCMP vehicle or virtually identical uh, and was allowed to get away with that. How is that even legal? So you can understand there are heightened concerns about that right now, which is why on Vancouver Island, RCMP were tipped off about a motorcycle that apparently looked a lot like an RCMP bike. Constable Monica Terini is the media relations officer at the Comox Valley RCMP detachment and talked to our Nikki Reitmeyer about this. So how did you guys first hear about this bike? Was it a tip that you received from the public? Yeah, so we received some information that um, there may be a motorcycle or a report that somebody may be impersonating a, a police motorcycle in town here. So our frontline member 
member of the municipal traffic section did observe that motorcycle on Ryan Road here in Courtney and stopped the vehicle at the side of the road uh, just to conduct an investigation into the fact that the motorcycle really did have a likeness for a police vehicle and, you know, to kind of find out why and what was going on. So we did stop that driver. Um, He did have some lights on the front of his motorcycle. He was warned to cover those up if he was on a public roadway. And he did provide, you know, several reasons for the motorcycle looking the way it was. You know, it's worth pointing out that the motorcycle didn't have any sort of police emblems or stickers on it whatsoever. It was a white motorcycle, which is similar to what our traffic members do drive around. So just looking at it quickly, absolutely could be mistaken for a police vehicle. But this driver and the motorcycle, there's no indication that they were actively impersonating a police officer at any point. No attempts to pull people over, act like a police officer in that that sense of the word. Uh, Okay, so this guy looks like he was not actively trying to impersonate a police officer, although he did have a motorcycle that looked a heck of a lot like a police bike. Now, I get why you guys got the tip, though. I mean, certainly following those terrible events in Nova Scotia, people are going to be more concerned about that kind of activity or what they see. And I think that that's exactly correct. I mean, you know, absolutely following the tragic and horrific events in Nova Scotia, our residents might have a heightened concern about people imitating police officer, and that's going to be there, and and that's okay and completely understandable. You know, this kind of reminds me of a couple years back, a friend of mine bought an old Crown Vic. It was an old police cruiser at auction. And this thing still looked so much like a police cruiser that when you were driving with him, everybody behaved themselves on the road. I mean, it was almost kind of funny watching everybody around you do the speed limit just in case this was a ghost car. But I thought, man, my buddy's going to get in trouble one day for driving this thing. Are there any rules around driving a vehicle that looks a lot like a police cruiser, even if the intention isn't bad? Uh, You know what? That would really depend on the circumstance. It really is going to depend on how what the vehicle looks like and how it may or may not have been modified. An old Crown Vic that's been sold at auction and somebody's purchased and inherently it does look like a police vehicle. You know, there's nothing, there's not going to be anything illegal about that. But, you know, even myself driving down the road, if I see a vehicle like that, I'm going to look down and see how fast I was going. So we do have those vehicles on our road that, you know, to the, to the naked eye, yeah, absolutely, right away, you might think they're a police vehicle and they're not. Um, what is absolutely illegal is to pretend or impersonate a police officer. So under no, in no way, shape or form is that legal whatsoever. Okay, so let's say that somebody uh, sees a vehicle that they think looks too much like a police cruiser or any kind of suspicious behavior in that regard. What should they do? You know, absolutely give us a call. Give us a call so that we can address it and so that we can conduct an investigation and see what's going on. That is Constable Monica Torini, Media Relations Officer at the Comox Valley RCMP. I got to tell you, I've thought a lot about this situation since the Nova Scotia shooting. And I just don't like, what is the reason for having a vehicle that looks exactly like an RCMP vehicle? Why do you need that in, in light of what happened there? Why would you need that? Do you think that should just be banned? Not just that you're actively trying to impersonate a police officer, but what do you even need that for? This is Mornings with Simi. 
There are still so many questions about what reopening our province looks like, and none of those questions are, I think, louder or more important for parents right now than what our schools are going to look like. We are expecting an update on this noon today from Education Minister Rob Fleming, and you'll hear it right here on 980 CKNW, so make sure you listen in for that. But we thought in the meantime, let's talk to someone who is on the front lines of this. Terry Mooring joins us now, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Thank you for being here. Thanks very much for having me, Simi. What have the last, you know, three or four weeks been like for teachers? What are you hearing? Well, it was quite a feat to take, you know, more than 600,000 students and transfer them to remote emergency learning, as we call it, because um, it was done in a, you know, very short period of time. Um, People are doing the very best they can in some cases, like learning new technology in order to do it. And so I think it's pretty remarkable um, that we've been able to do um, what we've been able to do. And for the most part right now, um, you know, teachers are settling in, um, kind of, uh, you know, have gone through the first kind of crisis part of this whole thing and are, you know, refining what they're doing, um, ensuring that they're regularly reaching their students, having those conversations, teaching those lessons, that sort of thing. And do you think for the most part, is it, is it working right now? Like, what is your assessment? It, it is working. I mean, it is not ideal. And no one anticipated we would have to do this, and no one's ever done this before. And so it's not ideal. But certainly, uh, teachers are, you know, deciding on priorities in terms of learning, uh, trying to incorporate real-world learning into what they're doing right now. So, um, you know, taking some examples from, you know, what students have in their homes, what they can do easily, um, and using that to inform the lessons. It's It takes a lot of time, lots of planning. The, you know, teachers are spending a lot of time doing that. So, you know, in many ways, it's like, Uh, everyone's an early career teacher right now in terms of the amount of work they have to put in to make sure things are working for their students. Now, has the government been working with the BCTF on what the return to schools is going to look like? And what have you heard about that? Well, first of all, government's been working very closely with the BCTF, and I've really appreciated the uh, information sharing and the access and the, and the planning together. Um, and so what has begun to happen is we've started to have conversations about what it could possibly look like. Um, those are in the very early stages. What I appreciate about this government is they're letting science lead. Um, the provincial health officer will, um, you know, be making those calls in conjunction with her team. Um, and then, you know, the school system w- will respond. And so the planning, of course, as anyone would expect, is underway. Um, but in the very early stages, and, you know, this isn't going to happen next week. Um, there's going to be plenty of time given for people to make those adjustments. And um, and it's going to be another big um, feat to, to move schools back. How do teachers feel about that, about the idea of going back into a classroom? What teachers need to be assured of is that health and state safety is a top priority. So that's part of the planning right now, is making sure that those protocols and guidelines are in place People are comfortable with them, and they're followed across the entire province. And so that's absolutely number one. And it's been government's priority all along. And I've been, you know, obviously really happy about that um, in terms of the priorities or principles for education, health and safety of students, families, and employees is number one. And so that's the most important thing that needs to be in place. Is people need to know that they're going to be safe and secure in their schools, and, and they will be. Um, we'll just make sure that those protocols are in place. 
Right. So is the work being done right now on kind of developing those protocols? Like how do you clean a classroom? Who's going to do that? How often does that happen? Exactly. So that's underway right now. And, and, and really, it's, it's happened on a smaller scale because we have students in, in schools right now across the entire right. province. And so those are the essential workers' children. Um, and so we've been able to do it on a smaller scale now, and it's been working uh, very successfully. Uh, and, you know, obviously, teachers and support staff have been the ones um, doing that work and, and have been happy to do that. And so, you know, it'll just be taking that on a broader scale. Is there a preference? Like, does the, does the BCTF provided any thoughts to the government on, you know, we think it should be the older kids first or we think it should be the younger kids first? Well, I know that um, there's a number of jurisdictions that, you know, government is tracking, uh, Denmark, Norway, some of the other places that um, have already begun to um, reestablish students in schools and in class learning. And I think that's really beneficial to BC to be able to see what's happening in other jurisdictions and see what's working. I mean, it's, you know, I don't anticipate it's not going to be every student back every day, that's for sure. We'll have to reduce density in schools. And so, you know, the best way to do that uh, will be, I think, informed by what's happening elsewhere, which is, is, you know, a a big advantage that we have here. Are you confident that at this point, the end of the school year, like kids will be back in before the end of this school year in some way, shape or form? You know, it's what's hard to say about that is it really depends on our experience in BC. And and that's what I really appreciate. I appreciate there haven't been a whole bunch of different dates given about when we anticipate doing this. Um, I think the assurance needed for parents and and teachers is that we'll do it when it, you know, um, the BC experience is such that it makes sense to send um, students back to school and that it's, it's going to be healthy and safe to do so. And so, uh, you know, sending students back to school is a real uh, big step in normalizing um, our lives. And so it's an important step. But we also need to be careful that it, the timing is right. And I've been very impressed with the provincial health officer. Her careful, cautious approach has really served us well in BC, and I expect that to continue in terms of the decisions in education. All right. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Okay, we're going to talk about testing now for COVID-19. And the reason why is, of course, this is one of the hotly debated issues in this pandemic situation. And that is, who can get a test for this? Well, turns out, testing will now be more broadly available for people in the Lower Mainland who might be experiencing symptoms that are consistent with COVID-19. That's a little different from what we have seen in the past. And we wanted to know, well, how does that make it available to you? What process do you have to go through? So joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Mark Lachison, who is the medical health officer with Vancouver Coastal Health. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi there. So what does this mean for the average person who may think now that, oh, I've got these symptoms, what do I have? Yeah, well, you know, we've seen a lot of cases of COVID in our region, but the number of cases and hospitalizations has really come down. And we're starting to move into a phase where we need to, uh, you know, get back to normal life and reopen society. And so one of the criteria for doing this is making sure that we are aware of all the cases of COVID that are out there so that we can do public health follow up and, and really try to contain them. And so You know, we have good laboratory capacity now, and so we recommend that all individuals with new onset respiratory or systemic symptoms compatible with COVID-19, so those are things like fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, sore throat, runny nose, 
uh, loss of sense of smell, headache, muscle aches, fatigue, and loss of appetite um, can be tested for COVID-19. And then there's a, a group of people that we think it's really important to test, and those are people associated with long-term care facilities, hospitals, healthcare workers, um, people who are contacts of cases, travelers, people living in uh, congregate settings, and uh, people who are homeless, and then also first responders. So, um, so yeah, we're expanding. So we're expanding it essentially, right? It used to be that second group you talked about. They had priority. Now we're opening it up a little bit. Yeah, we're calling this sort of universal testing. Anybody can be tested. The only the only criteria really is that you do have symptoms. We still don't recommend testing for people without symptoms. Okay, so then how do you get one if you think you just go to the doctor and ask for one? Well, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of things are closed right now. So the best the best places to go in the lower mainland are the um, urgent and primary care centers. And there's two in Vancouver, the, the REACH Center and the City Center, UPCC. And then there's one on the North Shore as well. Um, people can also, if they're sick enough, go to emergency rooms. They can all do the testing as well. And then some family doctors are still, uh, you know, have their offices open and are doing testing. But people should call ahead in that environment to make sure that they are doing testing. Right. And even just maybe call your doctor or the clinic and they can tell you where to go, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And people with symptoms, you know, should should still put on a mask if they have one as they're coming in so that they don't expose other people. Right. Are, are, do we think, are we concerned at all that this might also increase our numbers if we're expanding the testing? Well, we've really seen the numbers of people with respiratory symptoms in the community decrease drastically. You know, when we had the, the big epidemic wave in our region, we were also in the middle of our influenza season. And so we were seeing a lot of people who had respiratory illness, but that has just de- decreased dramatically as the influenza season has ended. And so now it's just not that many people with respiratory illness out there in the community. So uh, even though testing is much more widely available, um, we, you know, we, we, we aren't seeing huge numbers of people coming in to be tested. All right, we'll see how this goes. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Appreciate that. That is Dr. Mark Lachison. He's the Medical Health Officer with Vancouver Coastal Health. You may have heard in the news, they are expanding testing for COVID-19. It's now going to be more broadly available. So as you heard him say, if you have some of those symptoms, fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath, sore throat, painful swallowing, loss of sense of smell, headache, Uh, muscle aches, fatigue, loss of appetite, uh, then you should call your doctor. Don't just go to the doctor's office, but call your doctor or call 811 and you can now actually get tested for COVID-19. This is Mornings with Simi. I can only imagine how difficult this time is right now for people who've been planning their weddings. Because honestly, planning a wedding at the best of time uh, is very stressful and can cause big headaches. And now with all of this uncertainty, it's even worse for couples out there. But you know what? There are some couples who do want to forge ahead with the plans for their wedding, even though they're going to have to kind of rearrange things from what they had previously planned. Our Nikki Reitmeyer decided to explore the idea of what it's like to get married during a pandemic. Meet Jason and Kelsey. They just had a wedding on Facebook Live. Now, they were supposed to get married at the end of April. I work in an emergency room. As an ER nurse, Kelsey well understands the risks of social gatherings. She said, though, when this whole thing started, she really didn't know what the full impact could be. At that point, we were kind of hearing, you know, it's just kind of like the flu. And then kind of the more 
We started to hear globally how it was impacting and how quickly it was spreading. We started to get a little bit more nervous, so it started to feel a lot more real very quickly. New measures are being taken to help curb the spread of the virus. We'll be limiting public gatherings of no more than 10 people at any indoor or outdoor place or premises. A difficult decision to cancel all public events. We'll look at further limiting non-essential gatherings down from 50 people to five people. We will not be having those big events where people gather together this summer. This includes gatherings or family events such as weddings and funerals. As the world started to change around Kelsey, it became pretty clear. Her wedding was not going to be how she imagined it. One of my bridesmaids lives in England. So as soon as we started to hear that flights were getting canceled and borders were starting to get locked down more, then it was kind of becoming clear that regardless of whether or not it came to that point in Canada, that it was going to look very different than initially planned. Like so many other couples, they began to watch their wedding plans unravel, including the venue. We didn't want to just up and cancel because then it was going to be on us for one that we were the ones making the cancellation. So we were kind of in a bit of that limbo spot where we kind of needed to wait for the hall to almost make the decision. So as soon as laws started getting passed in terms of like the number of people that could get together, different events started getting shut down. We were like, okay, this is definitely going to happen. And then the hall contacted us and kind of further reinforced to us that we were going to need to reschedule. So without a wedding venue or the legal ability to gather, Kelsey and Jason could either reschedule their wedding altogether or take it online. They chose the latter. We've been able to, through a Facebook group, kind of connect everyone. And so they'll all be able to kind of watch a live stream of us formally saying our vows and signing our marriage license. At home, in their living room, on a Saturday afternoon, they tied the knot. The pastor showed up in person, but he was safely social distancing. Welcome everyone to this very interesting wedding that we're celebrating today. Yeah, a lot of not hugging going on. Kelsey walked down the aisle, which was really just her hallway. The whole thing took about 30 minutes. 50 or so guests were able to live stream it on Facebook, so they watched the whole thing happen from their own homes on their computers. And when the ceremony was over, well, there wasn't a traditional reception. No, instead, dozens of cars lined up down the block from the couple's home. The people inside those cars cheered and honked their horns as they passed. People are missing birthdays and births and baptisms and all kinds of different things that people have been planning for a long time. And it's never nice to have to change those plans, especially for something so unexpected and something that concerning in terms of health. It's not like this date didn't work for people. It's like, well, no, this is just not safe. Heading into this summer, live-streamed weddings will likely become much more normal, which, as a guest, means that you can't celebrate with the couple in person. But it also means that you don't have to wait through any long, boring speeches before you can eat dinner or get stuck at a table full of people who you don't know. But does this mean that you still have to send a gift? 
For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Well, yeah, you still send a gift when somebody gets married, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that. All right, let's break this thing down. Nikki Reitmeyer is with us, producer Victor Young as well. Good morning, guys. Good morning, morning. Sammy. All right, Nikki, you want to know, should people still buy a gift? I say yes. I say no. (sighs) Well, I hope the answer is no, because I was supposed to be at that wedding, and I was watching it on the Facebook live stream, and I did not get a gift. So, wait a minute, that wedding that Nikki just featured in her report there, Victor, you were actually supposed to be at that wedding. That's right. I had this weekend booked off, you know, well in advance last year already, and then as the date approached... You heard in the clip there, my friend mentioned that they had international travelers planning to come and it started to look like that wouldn't be an option. And then just a couple weeks later, we found out we wouldn't even be able to come from inside of the country with the new social distancing measures. And what about a car? Did you send a car? Did you like anything? Okay, did you just bring me on to roast me here? I did not (laughs) send a car and now I'm really questioning all of my choices. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Okay, so Nikki, what is your thinking on this then? Well, because typically when you go to a wedding and you try to justify how much it is that you're going to be giving the bride and groom an envelope of cash, you go, okay, well, I at least have to cover the cost of the dinner. Except in this case, there's no dinner. You're watching a wedding on Facebook Live, but you're sitting in your pajamas in your living room eating craft dinner. So do you have to still give them 150 bucks because you're not really going to their reception now? So I think uh, 20 bucks, that should suffice. Victor, was that your thinking on this as well? Well, I just figured since I wasn't going to be there to deliver it in person, it didn't really have the same feel to it. And she did mention that they were able to reschedule the hall. Hopefully there will be a big bash when this is all over they'll do a little ceremony everyone will have a big party and then we'll be able to shower them with the gifts uh which i most definitely will have bought by <laughs> oh that come on no 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 give me a break because if you're traveling for that wedding what do travelers who go to weddings do they say i already had to pay for the cost Nikki. of the flight therefore oh boy. i won't be giving them the full the gift either. See, so don't give me this. You'll give her a gift later. We know you're not giving a gift. Nikki, the pandemic Nikki. is a perfect opportunity to give less at weddings. Oh, look at her go. Listen, to me, giving <laughs> gifts at a wedding is not like, oh, I have to cover the cost of, of me being here. Weddings are a time of celebration. You're there because you want family, friends, loved ones to see you start this. When I give a gift at a wedding, I give it because you're like, oh, I'm here. Start your life with this present enjoy this, not because you spent 40 bucks on me, here's enough to cover me coming to your wedding. Ah, See, see, Sammy, you are just a way better person than all of us, (laughs) because whether it's birthdays, any kind of celebration, you're sitting back weeks in advance going, what's the most thoughtful present I can buy them, thing I can get for them, thing I can say to them? I think people like Nikki and I, don't want to speak for Nikki here, but we sit back and we go, okay, what's expected of me? Oh boy, (laughs) guys, guys, we're going to have to have a talk about this. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this discussion, but I feel like we could have gone much longer on this. Uh, Thank you for that. Thank you. All right. So people can weigh in on this too. What would you do uh, if you had to go to a live stream wedding? You sat in your living room and you watched this wedding on the live stream. Would you still send a gift? I would, I would at the very least send a card with a little something for the couple to enjoy themselves. What would you do? Simi at CKNW.com.